Hi there, it's Andrew here. Uh, we're looking at a letter to the family, studies in 1st John, and we're in study number four. That's in 1st John chapter three, and we'll be focusing mainly on the first half of 1st John chapter three. We're hoping to do the whole chapter, but you know the way these things go. And we trust there'll be a blessing to you as you listen in. It was a long time ago when we did chapter one and two. A brief recap, I think, is needed. John is writing to the family of God. That's the way he writes. He writes to a family with a shared identity, a shared life, a shared love, a family that has a father, a family who is associated with the, the eternal son, the, the son of God. So so John, when he's speaking, he doesn't speak of believers so much as sons of God. In fact, only once and a kind of a bleak reference at the end of uh, Revelation does he speak of believers as sons. But rather he does speak of them as children, as born ones in the family of God. There is one son and there are many children in John's description. Of course, we know that Paul emphasizes the sonship aspect of things, the legal adult sonship that we have by son placing, by adoption, uh, a similar system as what was um, brought out by the, the Romans and used by the Romans. Uh, but John doesn't speak of us being adopted into God's family. That's not really his force. It's rather that we are born into God's family. We, we have been born uh, anew. We have been uh, transformed by the indwelling Holy Spirit, by the new life that we have now uh, in Christ Jesus. Uh, so that is the focus of, of John's writing. But he's, he's writing to believers who have been greatly disturbed by false teachers who have come among them and then have eventually left them, taking a number of false Christians, sorry, I should say professing Christians with them as they exited. These false teachers, or better, false prophets, First John 4, made false claims about the incarnation of, of Christ. Now, we don't want to get into Gnosticism in a lot of detail, but simply a number of the, of the features of Gnosticism are these. Gnosticism, the very word, means knowing. Um, so they, they felt they were knowing, they were had knowledge that others did not have. And so they, they tended towards like forming um, a band of those who were knowing ones or, or initiated in some way. Uh, but they believed that um, matter was inherently and essentially evil. So that all the material that we see in the universe is somehow bad. It's bad. And the spirit is, by contrast, good. Um, so they believed that Christ must have not been truly flesh. I mean, if he's good, he can't have been truly human truly flesh or that the christ spirit must have descended on the man jesus for a short time so some of them thought that okay what must have happened to something like this um after his baptism spirit came upon the christ spirit came upon jesus and left him before the cross um so these were serious fundamental errors about the person of christ that affect the whole of the gospel. Just think about it. How could Christ be the substitute for us as being truly human, a man standing in for man? Uh, or how could he satisfy the weight of a righteous God's judgment against sin if he's not truly divine, if he's not God himself? So that 
is the problem, the conundrum, if you like, uh, that can only be answered by the Lord Jesus being fully and truly God and fully man at the same time. So, John tackles this false teaching head on in this letter. He does it in chapter 1, verse 22 and 23. He does it in chapter 4, verse 4, uh, verse 2 and 3, I should say, and into chapter 5, and he tackles all different aspects of it. But one of his major concerns is that there's been collateral damage done, done among the believers. Look at First John chapter 2. This is our key verse, I think, that the whole of the epistle rotates around. First John chapter 2, verse 19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. What does he mean by that? Well, they went out from us. They separated themselves from us, these people. But they were not of us. In other words, they did not have our nature. They did not have our character. They, did, they weren't truly in the family of God. For if they had been of us, this is how he knows, they would have continued with us. If they were truly the Lord's own, they would have continued in the true doctrine of Christ. But they went out. And what was the purpose? Why, why did God allow this sovereignly to happen? That it might become plain that all they all are not of us. See that? So every one of them that had followed this false teaching to its logical conclusion and say these things about the Lord Jesus Christ that were wrong, um, that were detrimental to the gospel, were actually nailing their colours to the mass and they were telling everyone around that they were not truly the Lord's. Now that might, it might seem easy just writing that down, but if you think about it from the point of view of those who were there. So you've got a, a little church and everybody seems to be going on for the Lord and then these false teachers come to your church and they say these funny things about the Lord and they seem to be so knowledgeable and knowing it. And there's a little group gathers around them that includes your uncle that had been good to you. And then all of a sudden they all pull out and, and your uncle goes with them. Um, and you say to yourself, is my, is my uncle, is he is he truly the Lord's? Um, this is John's answer. Well, no, not if he's following these teachings. To, to go into this doctrinal error in a full sense calls into question any legitimacy you had to a relationship with the Lord in the first place. For continuance is the proof of reality. Continuing in the doctrine of Christ and the teachings about the Lord proves the reality of what you are. And this is John the Apostle speaking as the last of the Apostles. We'll see that in the next uh, chapter as well. So John is concerned about this situation pastorally. Many believers had been rattled and they were probably wondering what to make of it all. Of course you can see the parallels with the upper room, can't you? Judas going out and the Lord using that time to tell the, the disciples and reassure them that he knew uh, about the traitor in the midst and, and so on and so forth. So there's a parallel there and this could lead this potential self-doubt like it did with the disciples Lord is it I is it I am I really who I claim to be there could be all sorts of issues that come out of of betrayal and defection and one of the 
issues that comes out of it is a lack of assurance that these believers might have. So John seeks to clear the air. He'll he'll set things out very dramatically. Either you're either light or darkness. You are either in love or in hatred. And you're either in life or in death. Everything is very stark. Um, I, I use the illustration of litmus paper. Litmus paper was simply that is used simply that to prove uh, there that something is an acid. It's not proving how strong or weak of an acid it is. John's not here going into the details of how strong or weak a Christian is. He'll use exhortations to say we should love more, for instance. But he's saying if there's no love shown at all, it proves that you're not a Christian. Uh, and so on. So, so he's really emphasizing that the nature, the life that you get as a newborn child of God, it manifests itself. And we have tests of life. Now, there's a lot of other things we could say about um, John um, and, and First John. He uses this kind of parallelism. He uses this these patterns through his writing. It's not so straightforward as, as Paul is in some ways, but it, it follows a lovely pattern. Uh, there, there are definite evidences of salvation. We saw that in chapter 2. Uh, and, and John's evidences really seem to lie in three areas. There's what we might term the the righteous life evidence, or we might just term that the moral evidence of salvation. Is someone upright and moral? Is someone living a life that is distinct from the world around? Well, that's an evidence that they truly belong to the Lord. Number two, another evidence he speaks about is what we might term the doctrinal evidence. Uh, does it? Do they believe the apostles? Uh, do they believe the truth about the Lord Jesus? Do they believe that that the Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? Um, are they true as to what they believe that came from the apostles? So that's the doctrinal evidence. But the third evidence is what we might call the social evidence. Do they love their brothers and sisters in Christ? And what he's going to prove throughout this letter is these three tests are failed by those who went out from them. But they are passed by genuine believers. So these false teachers fail these three tests. But the true believers pass them. I hope that makes sense. It'll become more evident hopefully as we go through. Now into chapter 3. We're going to deal with family traits today. You'll see the last verse uh, of chapter 2 reads like this. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Now John is going to mention this idea of birth, of new birth. And he's going to mention it uh, on several occasions during the rest of this letter. If you just take those references... And, and underline them in your Bible from chapter uh, 1 verse 29 or 2 verse 29 the whole way through you'll start to see what John's really wanting to emphasize about this if you know that he is righteous you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him so the very first thing he's saying listen he's righteous God's righteous and if you're born of God, you'll show something of that family trait. You will be marked in some level and at some degree by a righteous character. So let's read the, 
the rest of, 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 of this section and then we'll speak a little bit about it. First John chapter 2 verse 29 to 3 verse 10. We'll just pray before we do so. Father, help us to understand your word. Bless it to us, we ask of you, and we would pray that you would continue with us. In the Lord's name, amen. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Behold, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are now God's children, but what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning, and no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. By, the, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does, does not love his brother. So, as he moves into these family traits that he's going to emphasise between uh, the end of chapter 2, 2.29, right to the end to chapter 4, verse 6, he's going to lift three major traits. Uh, and they'll parallel with those three different tests. The, the life test, if you like, the righteousness test. The love test, the social test. And the light test, the doctrinal test. Those three tests, uh, John is going to emphasize over the next um, chapter in a bit and from chapter 2 verse 29 to 3 verse 10 the emphasis is on the whole subject of righteousness of a different kind of life it's the living family of God that we're dealing with they have a different kind of life than the the world around so the living family of God then from chapter 3 and verse number 11, down to the end of chapter 3, verse number 24, we have what we might call the loving family of God. The, the emphasis is on the, the social test. Uh, and he's going to emphasize that true believers love one another in a deep, in a real way. And the world looks on and hates and doesn't understand and all those kind of things. But there's a sense in which there's deep, true, meaningful love between believers and we'll come to that god willing and then as he comes into chapter number four and he looks at we'll look at the first six verses there he's going to emphasize that we not only have a living family a vibrant living righteous godly family that takes character from god himself who's righteous 
not only do we have a loving family again taking character from God himself who is love uh, but we also have a a listening family a, a listening family a family that listens to the apostles who came from of course from the Lord from God ultimately and, and so we have uh, those who want to listen to the truth of God they want to listen um, because they are um, associated with God so those three three big tests is what he's going to deal with in the next chapter uh, or so the living family the loving family the listening family and that's what sets Christians apart from non-Christians those who are not truly the Lord's own and so let's look at that in a little bit more detail just now the living family of God the life from the father we've just mentioned this of course um, if you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. In other words, when, when God gives of his nature to his children, they never become God, but they do become like God. They, they become like him. Uh, and so they have this nature born within them upon the new birth. That means that they want to do what's right and they tend towards doing what's right. There's a battle has commenced. Before you're a Christian, there is no battle. You just do what you want to do. You do only the sinful things that you want to do. There's no battle in your heart in that sense unless the Spirit of God is working in your life. But that's an external force that, that's coming into your life to change your direction. But as far as you're concerned, your nature is to go against God. And yet, when you're born of God, you're given a new nature. And so, righteousness is imprinted on the nature that you get from God. Uh, and so, you've been born of God into a family where righteousness is prized. And you are starting to exhibit that righteous if you're truly righteousness if you're truly from God. The life from the Father. But then, of course, we have the love that's in this family. Look at verse number one of chapter three. Behold, what kind of love the Father has given to us. Now, the ESV has see, and that's a nice word, but, but behold, I think, is a better word for here. The reason why I say that is it makes a distinction between two words for love. Uh, behold has the thought behind it of stopping and taking a real deep profound look at something stop and look at this this kind of love this foreign kind of love that's the same word that's used what manner of man is this that even the wind and waves obey him what foreign kind of person is this when they looked on Jesus as he controlled the waves and they fell and worshipped at his feet they say what manner of man is this so what they're saying here is Behold what manner of love, what kind of love the Father has given to us. And so we have the love of the family, the Father's love. That we should be called the children of God. And so we are. And so we are. Now what do we have here? First of all we notice that we are called the children of God we're placed as as children in his family but we're not just called it 
you know, you can drag someone in and call them part of your family, but it's not quite the same as being born into the family. And what we have in First John is this. It's the full works. It's the fact that we were born into this family, that we are actually those. We are the children of God. Whether we live in the good of it, the way we should or not, this is what we are. We are the children of God, the born ones of God. That's the thought in this word, children, the bairns of God. We are children of the living God. Isn't that mighty? The Father has bestowed this unique, this remarkable love on us. We are there able to stop and revel and appreciate that we've been brought under his banner of love. And of course, as righteous now, because this is what I'm going to emphasize during the whole section, as righteous, because we're brought into the family of God and because we have this love, we can just bask in it and it, this will affect our character. Our, our character is united to the God that we have come to know as a father. The reason why the world does not know us is because it didn't know him. Now, some people think it's saying because it didn't know the Father. However, the next verses seem to point out that it's speaking about the Son of God. And John does that. He, he's ambiguous around his pronouns. Sometimes it's quite hard to tell where he's speaking about the Father or the Son. It's, it's almost like he's doing it purposely to emphasize the equality of Father and Son. But here he says the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. You see, when the Lord Jesus came into this world, he was the Son of God eternally. And yet he didn't have a halo around his head that the world just said, that's the Son of God over there. Now, they knew he was different. They knew he was distinct. They knew he was all of these things. But they just couldn't face the fact that he truly had come from God, that he was truly of God, that he was the Son of God. They pushed against us. And when I'm speaking about the world, I'm speaking about the world system and the people bound up in that system who were refusing to recognize the Lord Jesus Christ. He came onto, he came into the world and the world received him not, it tells us in First John, uh, or sorry, in John chapter 1. So we shouldn't be surprised if we're not recognized by the world as the children of God. But we have this love in the family that should encourage us. Even though we're not recognised by others. And I suppose it's true of a lot of families that there's kind of in jokes and almost like a, 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 a biosphere, that's the wrong word, but a, a relationship that happens inside the family. An appreciation that's just for those inside the family. Little in jokes and memories that are shared together don't be surprised that that's true among believers because out there in the world people won't see us the way we know we are before God beloved we are God's children now we are already God's children but what we will be has not yet appeared in other words there's going to be a time when it's obvious to everybody everybody will see that we are truly God's children it will be blindingly obvious when we, when people look upon us, we've been so transformed and transfigured into the likeness of God and of Christ. 
not only inwardly but outwardly, that people acknowledge that we are the children of God. But that's not so now. We are God's children now, but it, it doesn't yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. So there's a time when he's going to be visible and manifest, both to us and then eventually to the whole world. When he appears, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. So there's going to be something transformational for us as believers to gaze upon the glory of Christ for the first time. Just stop and think about that. There's going to be a time when you and I, poor, wretched sinners of the dust, marked out for judgment, who've been saved by the grace of God, taken into the family of God, born into God's family, we're going to our eyes are going to behold the King in his glory. We're going to look in him. We're going to appreciate him. And the very sight of him is going to so radically transform us outwardly and inwardly that we're going to be like him forever. Isn't that tremendous? We shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. It will be transformational to look upon the risen Christ in all his glory. Now, someone asked the question, is this Christ like he was in the mountain? And I suppose it's similar in ways, but the, the Mount of Transfiguration. But I think it's more. When, when the Lord Jesus said, I want them to be with me. When he spoke to the Father, he said, I would that they which are with me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory. I think that's deeper than what we see in the Mount. I think the Mount is the kind of outward expression of kingdom glory that we will see that everyone will see in the future day when the Lord Jesus is king in Jerusalem and so on king over all the earth but I think there's something far more profound here this is looking upon the king you think about it like this uh, in Psalm 45 it speaks about the the wedding of a great king and there was that way in which looking on that king from the outside the, the common people could see something of that king the, the people that were in court could see something like a king. But, but there would be that one special person, the queen, who, who would see so much more of him, get to know that king better and better, would get to know something more of the greatness of that king than anyone else, if he was truly great. And of course, the one in Psalm 41, 45 is truly great. Uh, they would, would see something far more deep. And so that's our place as believers in the Lord Jesus, as those who are part of God's family, as those who are uh, part of that eternal purpose of God to have many sons like unto his son, as we view him, as we see him as he is, everyone that thus hopes in him, has this hope fixed upon him, purifies himself just as he is pure. So these are the things, if you like, the positive side of righteousness. This is how we become more and more like Christ. This is how we become more and more like God, the one who is righteous. Um, and that's really what he's saying at this point. Then he, he, he 
flips over to the negative side, if you like. And he says in verse 4, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. You see, these false teachers, um, many of them were antinomians in their character. They thought that you could just live life whatever way you liked. After all, if your body, your fleshly body is corrupt anyway, and there's nothing you can do about that, uh, and it's all basically corrupts their own word because it's all essentially bad, um, you just live it. You just have your life the way it is and you can have a kind of separate, uh, etherical, um, religious experience existence that's nice and separate and packed away in the spiritual realm. But you can just live your life to the whatever lusts and pleasures are in it. And this side, that's the way some were thinking. So in other words, they were they were taking sin and making it a, a they, they were taking the heart out of what sin is. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness, he says. Sin is lawlessness. It's against God, essentially and ultimately. You know, and you notice he'll use the expression, you know, you see, they use that expression. We know so much. We're Gnostic. We're, we're knowing ones. He says, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him is no sin. You know that his purpose in coming into this world, the Lord Jesus, was to take away sins and in him is no sin. So his very nature and character is opposed to sin itself. In contradiction to sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. So what he's saying is he's, there's, a, there's a big split here between those who are living unrighteous lives and sin is a simple tasty morsel that they feel they can just run under their tongue and take whenever they want and be involved in and there are those who are fighting against it and struggling against it yes at times tripping and falling but tripping and falling stumbling upward as it were they're going in the right direction because they've really got a change in their life they're abiding in Christ they they're united to Christ they are abiding in the truth of Christ, the doctrine concerning him. And their moral life is showing that they're different. There's a character, the character of the family is seen here. And, and Christ's purpose in coming into this world to, to take away sins and Christ's purpose in trying to undo the works of the devil as we come down, those things show to us where this family lies with regard to sin their whole character and nature is against sin little children let no one deceive you he says there are people and they're so good at selling snow to the eskimos there are people and they're, they they find it easy to say words that make them sound so plausible but just you remember this by your their fruits you'll know them as the lord jesus said just, just look at their lives. Is that life a life practicing righteousness? Is that a godly life? Or if you're going to be honest, is is there something wrong about that life? Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil was sinning from the beginning. Now notice that. The devil has been a sinner from the beginning. We're talking about that. What beginning is this beginning? 
So John uses beginning quite a last in quite a elastic way. Here he's speaking about the beginning of the devil sinning. So you go right back, right back to when he was Lucifer, and he said, "I will be as the Most High," and that was the start of sin for the devil, and he hasn't stopped ever since. And and what he's saying here is this: the characteristic trait of the devil is continual sin. It's a continual sinning, and so those who are associated with him. Those who are of the devil, who are not of God, they're not in the family of God. They've not been born of the devil because the devil has done something miraculous in them. They have chosen their pathway, which has become characteristically more and more like the devil. They're from that other, that other side. I wouldn't call it another family because it's not really a family. But they're certainly not in the family of God. And the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And so here we have this family. And you say to him, you're looking at these groups. And there's the group that's righteous and trying to follow after the truth the apostles have set down. And they're trying to love one another, as we'll see in a minute. And there's this other group that has gone out from them. And they might seem plausible and they might seem... But the more you examine their lives, you start to see, well, actually, they fall short in certain traits. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, he goes on to say. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By the way, I'm, I'm, I'm reading from the ESV in this one. By this, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. He ever does not practice righteousness as not of God, nor as the one who does not love his brother. So the seed in the family. So with life from the Father, with the love in the family, with hope in the family, looking forward to Christ coming. We've got the character of the family against sin towards righteousness. We've got the seed that's seen in the family. No one who is born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed abides in him. In other words, when God saves us, he changes us. And so that begins a life process of transformation. Some people call it progressive sanctification. Um, It's certainly a continual process that is changing us slowly because God has done a remarkable work in our heart, in our lives. And that began when we passed out of death and into life. Now we'll see that very definitely in the second one of these sections. So the first section, as I said, is the living family of God. But you'll notice right at the end of this section, whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. That's, of course, the 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 life test, the the, the moral test, if you like. But then he, he adds to it the social test, he says, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Now he's going to pick up in the next section from verse number 11, he's going to pick up that idea of not loving your brother. And the rest of the chapter really follows out uh, with with it, the second of the three um, big arguments that he's going to make. The, the second litmus test, if you like, the second of fam- the family traits that shows those who are true and those who are not. But that's enough for me from now. Uh, I hope this will be a blessing to whoever 
gets a chance to read over this section and the next bible study hopefully whether it be in a few days or a week or so i trust it'll be a blessing to you too take care lord bless